Hello everyone. What a privilege it is to read and hear the Word of God. To hear from our Creator words of truth and words of wisdom and words of grace. May He open our ears that we might listen to Him and open our hearts that we might believe and learn to walk in His ways. Mark Twain said that the two most important days in our life are the day on which we were born and the day that we found out why. Each of us has been given life on this earth and each of us has an opportunity day by day and year by year to learn what this gift of life is for. What is your purpose? What is your life about? And perhaps more importantly, who are you living for? If someone was to look at your diary or your bank statement, if they could see what your mind dwells on or your heart delights in, what would they say about your life's purpose? What would they conclude about who you are living for? Today's message has the title, Live to Please God. We're looking at chapter four of the book of 1 Thessalonians, and this will help us explore these questions. You might like to stop the video now and read verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4. This is a wonderfully encouraging book. One of the earliest books in the New Testament ever written, just 20 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth in the year AD 50. He'd been in the city of Thessalonica just six months earlier and perhaps only spent a short time, perhaps one to two months, before he was driven from the city by riots. And as Paul wrote to the Thessalonian believers, he would have had particular people in mind, names and faces, friends and families, Aristarchus, Jason, Secundus, Sophia, Maria, Liliana, special people who had received new life from God as they believed in Jesus. So to help us today, we are going to imagine that Paul is giving advice to Theo of Thessalonica. You can imagine him as Theodore or her as Theodora. Either is okay. And remember just seven months before, Theo and friends were just living their lives, unaware that they were trapped in an empty way of life until a preacher arrived from out of town. This preacher shared stories of a man called Jesus and something changed within their hearts. A new impulse was planted there, a desire to seek the true and living God and no longer live for themselves or for idols, but to live for the one who had made them and saved them. As new believers, Theo and friends wanted to please God. But what was this God like? What sort of life did he want them to live? In our passage for today, Paul covers three topics, sex, love, and work. He says to Theo and his friends, be pure and leave your sin behind. Be present and love one another. Be purposeful and live a productive life. But before getting into specifics, Paul gives some general comments about living 
to please God. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you to do this more and more. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul had been celebrating that the grace of the gospel had arrived in Thessalonica. And now his focus shifts to how believers are to live. When we here live to please God, we can think, what must I do to make God happy? Or, what must I do to not make him mad? But in the Bible... Grace always comes first. This has always been the way. The rescue of the Exodus happened before the instructions at Mount Sinai. God saves people and then shows them how to live as saved people. What was true for the Jewish people as a nation was also true for these Gentile believers in Thessalonica. Theo and friends were saved as they put their trust in Jesus. And then the Spirit of God showed them how to live as saved people. Psalm 147 says this, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Paul says, Theo, you are living to please God. Now do so more and more. You've begun well. Continue in this good way. Keep looking to the Lord Jesus. Keep listening to him. Keep walking in his ways. Don't be distracted. To the left or to the right, keep your eyes on him. Paul has the enthusiasm of a father watching a young toddler take her first steps. Celebrating the right foot, then the left foot, then the right foot again. Hey, that's my girl. You are walking. You are on the way. Keep looking at dad. Keep coming. You're doing great. Don't give up. Have you begun to follow Jesus? Have you taken those first few steps of faith? What an encouragement to hear that from the very first step, Away from sin and towards the Lord Jesus, your life is pleasing to God. You might stagger, you might fall, but your heavenly Father sees your baby steps of faith and delights in you and urges you on. Let's turn our mind to some specifics. We'll spend most of our time on the first topic as it illustrates so many aspects of a life that pleases God. There's so much for us to learn here. Be pure and leave your sin behind. Verse 3 starts, It is God's will that you are sanctified. Now, sanctified means to be set apart, distinct, different, distinguished from common things. It speaks of a status as well as character and behaviour. God is holy and his people are to be holy. God sets the believer apart, moving them from death to life, from darkness to light, from lost to found. This change of status happens at conversion. 
Then God initiates a process of change in the believer's life, a process in which the believer is an active and willing partner, growing the believer to be more and more like Jesus. And yet as sin will always be present in this life, the believer continues to look forward in hope to the promise that one day in the future, the struggle will be over. The process will be complete and sin will be a thing of the past. God's will is that we are holy. A change of position in the past, a process of change in the presence and a promise of change, complete and perfect in the future. This is what God does in all who believe. And here Paul applies these truths to the particular topic of sexual purity. Now, why this topic? Remember, these believers were only six months old in the faith. They had just been called out of a life of idolatry to serve the true and living God. They lived in a culture where marriage was primarily so that children would be born with legal status. But the culture allowed for a man to have many different sexual partners. And the temples at which the idols were worshipped were places of terrible sexual perversion and debauchery. As I reflected on this during this week, I realised that Theo and friends, as new believers in a brand new church, would have never had an example of Christian marriage. They would have never seen a Christian man love his wife as Jesus loved the church, willingly laying down his life to provide for her and protect her and serve her and lead her in God's ways. They would have never seen a Christian woman giving herself fully and lovingly submit herself to a husband to demonstrate the wholehearted trust and devotion the church is to have with Jesus. They would have never seen older couples after decades of marriage demonstrate the faithful and patient love that makes human relationships work and enables human beings to flourish. All Theo and his friends had seen were examples over decades and generations of distorted views of sex and the devastation that this had caused their culture. So in verses 3 through to 8, Paul says to them, God's ways are different and God's ways are better. You see, sex is designed for the marriage of a man and a woman, for intimacy, for union, for enjoyment, and to produce life for future generations. Anything else is sexual immorality. Taking a good gift of God and twisting it. Sex before marriage, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, and whatever other aberration that our human hearts can dream up. God loves humanity so much that he hates anything that damages us. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. 
Paul has been careful already to warn Theo and friends of what is at stake. You see, knowing God changes everything. It is the most radical change of allegiance. We start to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. We see the goodness of self-control, not simply running with our passions, with what feels good. We see the goodness of doing right by our brother or sister, not taking advantage of another or taking what does not belong to us. We see the goodness of a life that is holy and honourable, holy towards God and honourable towards one another. Do you hear the refreshing clarity of what Paul says here? He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul is not simply giving good advice here. These are life-giving commands from God himself. Listening, trusting, obeying. This is how a creature honours their creator, how a disciple honours their teacher, how a child honours their heavenly father. And we do this because we know God. And God is holy and he calls us to a holy life. This is life as saved people, as disciples of Jesus. This is life pleasing God. Be pure and leave your sin behind. Now to topic number two. Be present and love one another. Verse nine. About your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Theo and friends, they got this. The more they heard of Jesus, the more they heard of his way of love. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. John was to write later, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, Bruce Springsteen, he might be born to run, but the true believer is born to love. Love is the spiritual DNA of all of those born of the Holy Spirit. A DNA that we inherit from our Father in heaven. A DNA that we share with our elder brother Jesus. Love is how we are recognised as disciples of Jesus. Now Theo and friends didn't need special instructions in this. God himself had taught them. They simply looked to Jesus, saw his example, followed the Spirit's lead and loved one another. Paul sees this fruit of the Spirit of God and rejoices in it. Remember his prayer in chapter 3 verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else 
just as ours does for you. Love overflows. God fills us with his love that it might overflow to others. Yet we do not become empty as we pour ourselves out in love, for true love comes from the infinite love of God. Now the love of Theo and friends extended beyond themselves out to all the believers throughout Macedonia. Chapter 1 verse 8 reminds us their faith in God, their changed life has become known everywhere. What a wonderful testimony of lives changed by grace. Could you imagine a church becoming known throughout Tasmania for the incredible love amongst its members and a love that overflowed beyond its own community? A love with that power that draws people in as the Lord adopts new believers into his family and they discover new life in Jesus. What sort of impact might that sort of community have on the people of Launceston or the state of Tasmania? Be present and love one another. Now to topic number three, be purposeful and live a productive life. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. We know that some of these believers were confused about the return of Jesus and the end of the world. And Paul picks up on this theme of idleness. Perhaps some of these believers may have been shirking their daily responsibilities in the world, waiting for the end to come. Or perhaps some were lazy and idle and freeloading on the generosity of this new community. They were receivers, not contributors, always the last to volunteer for anything. The non-busy had become busy bodies. These are the pitfalls of aimlessness and restlessness and boredom. When we are idle, we start looking at others, looking down our nose or over our shoulder, criticising, interfering, judging. When we neglect to manage our own affairs well, we start meddling in others' affairs. It's interesting to note how Paul raises this issue of being idle in the context of sexual sin. You may have noticed how these things often go together. Those who are idle or restless or bored are particularly vulnerable to the lure of pornography or the false promises of adultery. Idleness and aimlessness were to be issues for this new community of believers. Paul addresses them in his second letter to the Thessalonians as well. But here, Paul gives some very practical advice. Two key principles and two intended results. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And work with your hands. Greek culture degraded manual labour. It was beneath the people of status. 
but Jesus and the Judaism into which he was born honoured work in all of its forms. God-honouring work is good. It's part of how God has designed us. He's placed us in this world and given us work to do. He's provided wonderful resources for human flourishing. And part of our privilege is to take what he has given to us and put it to good use for the blessing of others. And at the most basic level, that means working with our hands. Think about what the hands of Jesus achieved in his short life. They were the hands of a carpenter building homes to shelter needy people. They were the hands of a healer, touching blind eyes and unclean lepers. They were the hands of a friend, welcoming broken people. They were the hands of a serpent, servant, washing dirty feet. And eventually, these were to be the hands of a saviour, nailed to the cross so that you and I might go free. The Lord Jesus knew how to work with his hands. He was a giver, not a taker. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He lived to please God. But beyond our hands, think about everything else the Lord has given to you and me. Our minds, our talents, our money, our training, our experiences, our networks. None of this belongs to us to do as we please and use for ourselves. We are not owners of these things, but stewards. The Lord has given us wonderful resources to put to good use, to bring life to others and bring glory to him. Now, there's so much more we could explore here about stewardship that brings glory to God but we may get sidetracked a little from our passage. In this context, Paul focuses on two results from God-honouring work. Firstly, that their daily life would win respect from outsiders. God-honouring work does this. The results are life-giving and good. And the way in which the work is done is honourable and brings glory to God. Peter, later on in his letter, was to say it this way. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Secondly, they were not to be dependent on anybody. Please don't hear this as Paul advocating Western independence. This is the last thing we as individualists need to hear. No, Paul is simply saying that life in the body of Christ is not one of freeloading. We all have a part to play. We all have something to contribute. Theo and friends, they would have remembered Paul's life amongst them. Surely you remember our toil and hardship. We worked night and day amongst you in order not to be a burden to anyone whilst we preach the gospel of God to you. Let's be contributors, seeking not to burden, 
but to bless and to build one another up. We've looked at these things of being pure and leaving our sin behind, being present and loving one another, and being purposeful and living a productive life. Now let's turn some our attention to some application. And as we do, let's keep this verse in mind, chapter 5, verse 14. Warn those who are drifting, encourage the disheartened, and help the weak. We are all at different stages in our relationship with God, and depending on our context, we may be needing some help. We might be needing some encouragement. We may be needing a firm warning. And sometimes we might need all three. Let's look at some application. Firstly, resolve to live for God. Seeking God's will is not primarily about, do I marry that person? Do I buy that car? Do I take that job? You know, it's right to pray about all these things and to seek his wisdom. But these are not the most important issues. This is God's will, your sanctification. Undivided devotion to God. Single-minded allegiance to the Lord Jesus. Wholehearted trust in the Holy Spirit. A life set apart and dedicated to God. If our loyalty is divided, every decision in life is complicated. For who do I please? But if our loyalty is clear, every decision is simple. I live to please God. Whatever he loves, I will love. Whatever he hates, I will hate. Whatever he says to me, I will do. I belong to him and he is my everything. As you seek to discern God's will in your life, resolve to serve one master and obey what you know to be true. Then the fog will clear on all of those other things and you will know how to please God in it all. Application number two, just stop it. As some of you have listened, the Holy Spirit may have pricked your conscience. There is a clear thing in your life that must change. And to borrow words from our Prime Minister, what you may need to hear is this. Just stop it. Not because it's un-Australian, but because your sin brings no pleasure to God. That photo that you've got stored on your phone. That website that you keep returning to. That song on your playlist. That relationship you know has crossed a line. Those thoughts that you entertain in your heart. That lazy posture. Those words of criticism or gossip or meddling. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about a sin in your life, just Stop it. Change can be so simple. If your heart's desire is to please God and you know there's sin in your life, then just stop it. Leave your sin behind. Look to Jesus. 
and be pure. Number three, you are not on your own. God gives us his Holy Spirit. Perhaps you know what you must change, yet you've tried and failed many times. Perhaps you're seeking to change by your own effort and by your own willpower. Hear some good news. God gives us his Holy Spirit. What a wonderful gift he is. He is the one who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose, Philippians 2, giving us a new desire and a new power to live for God. This is the promise mentioned in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The Christian life is not. God saved you by grace and now that you know better, you must try harder and live up to his standard. Otherwise, he'll get mad. No. Your journey began with amazing grace. It must continue with the same amazing grace. God gives us his Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. This is his enabling grace. The Spirit of God takes the word of God and forms you as a child of God for the glory of God. This is what he delights to do. Listen to him. Don't resist him. He is the one who grows the fruits of self-control, faithfulness, love and peace. Simply follow his lead. Trust him. Obey him. Number four, God washes us clean. Whenever we speak of sin, particularly sexual sin, Shame is lurking in the shadows nearby. Shame can be due to our own sin. Or it can come when others sin against us. Either way, it can feel the same. And when shame relates somehow to our sexual identity, it is deep and it is pervasive. I am dirty. I'm worthless. I am such a bad person. I must cover up. No one can ever find out about this. Did you hear those words in Ezekiel before? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. If you have shame related to sex used wrongly, Please hear the grace of the gospel. As you look to Jesus in faith, he sees your sin and he sees your shame and he washes you sparkingly clean. He removes all of that stain, all of that dirt, and he sets you free. He welcomes you into his new family and he gives you clean and fresh and glorious clothes that are fitting for the status of a son or daughter of the king. 
Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians. The sexually immoral, thieves, the greedy, slanderers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Now I want to conclude with a story and a song. I'm not planning to sing the song, but you might like to in a moment. They both make the same point, that a life that pleases God is a life of grace. This story was written by a man called Albert after his wife died, age 73. I was privileged to track that initial work of grace flowering out into Marilyn's progressive sanctification over the course of 52 years. However, all that God had done in her subsequent or subsequent to her conversion at age 19 until her homegoing at age 73, all of that could be put into a spiritual thimble compared to the ocean of grace poured upon her and into her the moment she breathed her last. In an instant, her spirit was purged of every last vestige of remaining sin, and she was endowed with the moral perfection of Christ himself. This is God's will. Your sanctification, a work of grace. Now, this song was written by a man called John, who was incredibly grateful to God. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed through many dangers, toils and snares. We have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. This song starts with a me, but it ends with an us. This is what grace does. It restores people to God and to one another and then enables us to live lives that bring pleasure to God. We must thank God for his amazing grace. Let's pray together. I'm just going to use some short verses from 1 Thessalonians to help us. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for one another and for everyone else. God, may you strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in your presence when the Lord Jesus comes again. May you, God himself, may you, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You, Lord, you are faithful and we know you will do this. Amen.